Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, we have 321 Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with representatives of the Coalition for Homeless Individuals, and in Two Minutes with Tom this week, Vice President Lindsay Toghill joins us to talk about the legislative and budget process. Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, there's an exodus of families from Cape Cod because of housing costs and other factors. And the declining enrollment of children in Cape schools spells trouble for the local economy. We'll discuss. And our own Brooke Sion, OA On Air producer and public relations account executive, reports back from his weekend covering NECAN, the New England Cannabis Convention. Finally, we discuss the saddest local sports news in a long time, the retirement of Hall of Fame-bound Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski. We look at what's next for Gronk, and the legacy of someone who may arguably be the most perfect role model for all professional athletes. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. All right, Kyan, let's start with Cape Cod. So here's a provocative lead from a story. This is from John Chesto in the Boston Globe. What happens to a society that loses its children? Now, we're not talking about the shopping mall. We're not talking about, God forbid, something much worse than that. Uh, we're simply talking about the, the number of children living on Cape Cod is, is declining at an alarming rate. Basically, population trends are going in a non-growth direction, particularly on the Outer Cape, right, that's Truro and Provincetown, but also on the Upper Cape, Bourne, uh, Sandwich, and those, uh, and those communities. Housing costs, the ability of, uh, the, um, the availability of housing stock, the, the fact that there's not a lot of apartment housing being built, that people um, uh, are turning their vacation homes they're into year-round homes, so that take those off the market. All these things are contributing to the fact that fewer children uh, are, are living on the Cape because fewer families are living on the Cape. And long term, that spells bad news for the economy because of the workforce and other factors. What do you think about this? Um, th- th- there always seems to be some dynamic impact in Cape Cod, whether it's environmental or social or societal or economic, and this is the latest. First off, hats off to the headline writer because... I mean, who who wasn't intrigued by that? Right? Loss of school age kids <laughs> threatens Cape Cod's economy. Like what? Where are they? Where are? Sounds like a sci-fi the, movie. The, they just walked into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, one thing that this article didn't address, and I was a little surprised, was transportation. Uh, I think that's my guess is a huge part of it. Whether you're talking about driving and traffic or train options, um, you know, there's not a ton of ways to get to the Cape via a commuter rail there's options but not enough for people to really commute back and forth meaningfully if you're driving forget it I, you know the, the traffic is horrendous to get here uh, into boston at least to you know if you're working here so or, even, or even or even to plymouth or brockton or, yeah or, or, wherever or, or it is wherever. i mean traffic and then forget it in the summer you're on a whole other level um but it is surprise it's one of those things you don't think about and it's a little alarming and a little concerning how do you how do you go backwards? I mean, you mentioned sandwich, 
30% drop in um, school-age kids in Sandwich. That's remarkable. It is. Enrollment actually fell significantly in just about every single school district. That's amazing. The Cape, the Cape was a big chunk of landmass. It's mm-hmm. not like a tiny little thing. It's, no. it's huge. And beautiful. And beautiful. And, um... and, 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 and a treasure. <laughs> a treasure. It is. Wendy Norcross is the um, CEO of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce. She, she says that business leaders have become increasingly concerned about the labor force the Cape's population peaked in the late 1990s, and it's been a steady decline ever since. So that, 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 that's pretty interesting. I have family that lives on the Cape. Uh, beautiful. Love to go down there. They, they still live there. They have a business down there, and that's also part of it. You know, I don't know how many people can live and work in the Cape because of a lack of options. Um, so I don't know. How do we revitalize the Cape? We have to save the Cape. Yeah. <laughs> In Provincetown, the town manager, David Panagor, they're doing everything they can. They've bought up former timeshare buildings, and one in particular, they're converting that to 26 apartments. Which is really smart. That's a good, that's a good move. I got a timeshare stashed away somewhere in all my files. It's like, talk about a bad penny. You know, you get one of those things, Do you can you never really? get rid of it. You yeah, have a timeshare so stashed away? No, we have one, meaning I, I never really take advantage of it. You got to pay the fee every year. It's a pain in the neck. Please convert my timeshare in Yarmouth into a, into 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 affordable family housing. I, 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 Before they do, can, can I use it? it? Take it. You can have. Yes, you can use it. It's yours. It's yours. <laughs> All right, you heard it here, folks. I've got the timeshare. You got it. All right, this past weekend at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston was NECAN 2019, the New England Cannabis Convention. We previewed it last episode with Jeff Lawrence, uh, president and co-founder, and Brooke Sion, our producer, and our man at NECAN uh, for OA On Air uh, is here with a report on uh, on the show and uh, and how things were this year. Brooke, thanks for uh, for uh, moving over to the microphone to talk about last weekend. Um, your give us the highlights of, of this year's uh, NECAN. It, it, it's it's the biggest cannabis industry convention of its kind in the Northeast. That's true. It definitely is the biggest um, in the Northeast. I went to Canacon also last year, and NECAN is twice the size of Canacon. It takes both Heinz Convention Center halls. Um, NECAN this year, we went last year as well, um, was a lot more sort of built up, I would say. In some ways, it was similar. Um, You know, you had your industry vendors, you had your people who aren't really even related necessarily to the recreational marijuana business, but are more on the cultivation side. There were a lot of, you know, things you don't usually think about. There were several air purifiers with big uh, big presences there. You know, uh, uh, HVAC systems, really big deal. Lighting, windows, like all the sort of behind the scenes things you never think of. They were there last year. The main difference that I saw this year was the amount of cannabis media coverage there. Last year, there were a few a few, uh, few cannabis media people. The Cannabis News Network um, sort of had a, a presence there. They had some things. This year, actual news agencies that cover the cannabis space had rented booths instead of sort of hanging out on the Canacast Row. Canacast Row. Right. So that was last Which, year. by the way, we invented. Let's just say that right now. That's yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we did. Uh, <laughs> we did invent that. Okay. Um, but this year, people had booths. really yeah. 
rented actual booths and were going around with camera crews with boom operators and cameramen and guys in suits asking questions to all the other booths, which was definitely a departure from last year. There were people live streaming the whole thing on YouTube. They had people coming up and uh, sort of queuing up to be live on YouTube with, I, I can't recall the actual channel names, sure. but I saw m much more of that this year than I did last year, which was definitely interesting to me. And there were, I would say, about the same number of sort of dispensaries, sort of everyone showing off their, you know, the seeds, that kind of stuff. But the amount of attention they were getting was significantly more than it was last year. So one question I have is because last year, and I spent some t quite a bit of time there last year, we Massachusetts was on sort of the cusp of adult use recreational, but but not there yet. This year we are, we're well into it. And I, I wonder if sort of the cultural components or the cultural elements were more present. It, it, it still was a very strong medical cannabis, medical marijuana feel, uh, as well as all, all the industry components and, uh, you know, so, uh, support uh, uh, functions for the industry. But a real, a real medical cannabis feel last year, I, I, I imagine that this year there might be more of a cannabis cultural element or feel to the show, but maybe there wasn't, but what's your, what are your observations? You know, there was a, a fair amount of that. I would say it was not significantly increased in terms of lifestyle visitors from last that, year. That's, what, yeah, that's, that's of, what I was getting at, lifestyle, sorry. Yeah, the people who were going around. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is you know, you're not you're not going to Nikan for free samples, right? You're, you you can't even have the product there, really. You don't you don't you can go and buy seeds there. So there you know, are a fair amount of people doing that. But I think a lot of the people who are sort of you know you could peg as lifestyle people were also there in some sort of official capacity. Either you know they work at a dispensary, they are trying to get into the industry, something like that. Um, so you know, I would say maybe third to half of the visitors that I saw were sort of outside people who were just sort of interested in the cannabis space. But really, from what I sort of saw in the conversations I overheard wandering around in the aisles, it was a lot of sort of like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is my sort of niche in the industry. Sure. Let's talk about, you know, or actually, I mean, just walking by, I heard people, you know, how did you get into this? I want, I'm very interested in becoming a cannabis professional versus just sort of, what do you guys have? You know, like, and, you know, there still were, I think probably three or four vendors I saw that were selling, you know, sort of the lifestyle stuff, paraphernalia, t-shirt, that sure. kind of stuff. But that really, really was not the main focus from what I could tell. And frankly, they had less people sort of around them than the, the you know, the, the cannabis marketers, the, the literal, like, I mean, an amazing amount of people were interested in air purifiers. Yeah, like a huge I, 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 last year, I mean, I was there last year. I, I remember I had a long conversation with a pro, you know a, a provider of sort of liability insurance and, and things that just functions that are important for any business um, that, that's Label growing. Printers, but that you don't really think of plastic exactly. bag people for the dispensary bags, you exactly. know, childproof cardboard boxes, things that you just never think of that are actually a huge part of the industry. Yeah, so. <clears throat> It's it's it's. I think it's fascinating, and this is it's it's why we as a O'Neill and Associates and OA on Air, and you know, it's fascinating to be literally <clears throat> front row seat, ground floor of an industry from its birth, and 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 think you know think. I'm trying to think of a, of a good of a good comparison, and and 
And there's not a great one that I can pull up other than sort of the gold rush of, you know, it, it's something is, it, it has begun uh, in, in, in multiple states around the country. And, and, and Massachusetts has just lurched in front of everyone, uh, you know, east of the Mississippi. And it's, it's amazing. So um, we're going to keep keep real, real close tabs on the industry and follow it and be involved. But uh, Brooke reporting back from NECAN, thanks so much. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you. All right, Kyan, let's talk football, specifically New England Patriots and Rob Gronkowski. This week we learned he is retiring. Terrible news for Patriots fan. fans. Probably, uh, I say, some would say arguably I would not, the greatest tight end in NFL history. Um, but he's, he, he, he made his announcement. It's funny, Mike Tom, Tomlin, the uh, coach of the Steelers, uh, who I loathe, uh, never has a, wor- a good word to say about anything Patriot says. Oh, he's retiring? That's awesome. That's the closest thing to a compliment Mike Tomlin has ever paid to anything New England Patriots related. In any case, um, it's a big deal. Uh, big loss for the Patriots. Not hugely unexpected. Uh, uh, Gronkowski had been telegraphing this. Um, but it's, but it's, a, it's a major development. What are your thoughts? The guy gets hurt a lot. <laughs> Gets hurt a lot. Well, he does now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he, he yeah. He's, I mean, he hasn't played a full season in how long? It's been a while. That he, yeah. yeah. You know, you got to take care of yourself. He's young. He's got a long life ahead of him. Um, but what a sad day, you know? I mean, Gronk was more, was, I think, if you didn't like football and you didn't like the Patriots and you didn't, you still knew who Gronk was and you were still kind of. You either loved him or hated him. I think more people loved him than hated him. I don't think he was a, a character. Of, I don't think a lot of people hate him. I, I, no, think, I think competitor he's... competitors sort of they they. It's a weird thing. They feared him, but in, in a respectful sort of not you know, in a respectful way. But I, I don't think people hated him. No, um, probably not. But probably no, no, no. I'm, I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing with you because yeah. you're right. But the reality is. Um, he had that on-field ability to absolutely change a game and, and to dominate. And especially early in his career, he was absolutely indefensible. You could not defend this guy in any way. Mm-hmm. And he would run over through Literally on top of uh, yeah. people. Yeah. So he, but here's my, here's my thought on Gronkowski. But then he's very goofy. He's very goofy. And he has this very goofy persona. And, you know... If you've been to these parades, these uh, Super Bowl parades, which we've been fortunate enough to see up close and personal, he's a very fun and exciting kind of figure, and he takes his shirt off and he dances and he pounds beer and shotguns beers and stuff. It was a very expensive bottle of wine this bottle year. Bottle of wine. He, yeah. has, he, has a, he has a big party personality, right? Yeah. But I think, actually, this guy is probably close to the ideal role model or, or or sort of role for the ideal professional athlete role model. And here's why. Well, number one, you can't be a role player and be a role model. Meaning, in pro sports, you kind of have to be a superstar first to be considered sort of a role model. Just, that's kind of the way it goes. You've got to be really good at the game on the field. He's probably the best ever as a tight end. So there's number one. But number two, or more importantly, is that the way he carried himself is the way I think athletes should. He was always having fun. He loved the game. He 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 left it all in the field. He played hard. But he enjoyed all the pomp and circumstance. He enjoyed all of that. He had a lot of fun playing the game. He had a lot of fun off the field, but in the right way, right? Yeah. He never 
you know, he never, even though he was, you know, drinking beer on the on, on the duck boats, big deal. He's having fun like everybody else. I don't think he ever did one thing to embarrass himself or his team or his teammates or his family. I don't think he ever had a single off-field nasty moment with anyone. Now, on the field, you mix it up. He had a big, a really bad penalty once where he basically just, you know, dove on a guy and elbowed him. Big deal. That's all part of the game. You get you you lose control uh, on the field. That's fine. Never had a moment off field that he should be embarrassed about, in my opinion, or, or, or ashamed of. And that's a big deal. Something to be proud of because it's, there are a lot of NFL players, quite honestly, that you can't say the same. And, and and the last ingredient of this is he's walking away on top, Super Bowl champion yeah. before any really big decline happens. It's pretty awesome. So hats off to Gronk. I will say before we wrap up, so talking about the Super Bowl parades, they ended the duck boat parade right in front of our building this year, which was amazing. Awesome. For 45 minutes, maybe, Gronk stood on that duck boat. People threw shirts at him. They threw hats. He He signed every single one and gave it back. And I just, I remember so many of us remarking to each other, like, what a classy thing to do. Also, another sign that this is probably it. But he really did. He took it all in and he enjoyed it and he understood what fans wanted from him and he gave it back. And I think that that's a whole other level of what made him a, like a remarkable person and a role model in that regard is that he was in it and he got it and he did some really classy things along the way while he, while he was also being, you know, an in the age of a mercurial and unpleasant pro athlete, this guy stands head, yeah. head and shoulders above them all. All right. That's Gronk. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's it for 321GO. Up next, an interview with representatives of CHI, the Coalition for Homeless Individuals. I had the opportunity to recently sit down with members of the Coalition for Homeless Individuals, otherwise known as CHI. The coalition is comprised of over 40 programs throughout Massachusetts who are working to serve homeless individuals. Each of these organizations, and so many others like them, provide shelter, permanent housing, workforce development, and support services related to physical, mental health, substance abuse treatment, The list goes on. And the amount of support and services provided to the thousands of men and women living in homelessness throughout Massachusetts is truly remarkable, all with a goal of ending homelessness and helping them find stability and permanency in their lives. Each day, these organizations are doing more and more to help those individuals in need. Hi, I'm joined by Lindia Downey of Pine Street Inn in Boston, John Yuzwinski of Father Bills in Mainspring in Quincy, and Bill Miller is calling in from Friends of the Homeless and Clinical Support Operations in Springfield. Thanks, everyone, for joining me here today. I've worked with the coalition for a couple of years now, and one of the things I've learned is really how vast the service offerings are for all of your programs. Can you talk about your work and how you're addressing the changing and really increasingly complex needs of the men and women you're serving each day? I mean, I think there's a number of fronts where we are seeing... Uh, no easy I, answer. I, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the, opo- the opioid epidemic and the horrible pain... Um, that that has caused at every level. It's driven more people to our doors. The, I would say, traditional treatment system um, cannot accommodate 
everybody who even wants treatment. There's lots of people who aren't even to the point where they're ready for treatment and it means they're in shelter and we have to do the best to manage that. We do our best to use harm reduction and work every day to try and get these folks into treatment. So I think that's become uh, more complicated. I think the other thing that we're seeing more and more of is people with very serious medical issues that have driven them to homelessness. They have insurance, but they lost their job because they couldn't work for three months. Mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't have three months' money in the bank to pay the rent, and they don't have somebody As to fall so back many on. People right? Don't. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I think that is a, an overlay of a of a system that's already dealing with a lot of, of complex issues. And you know, when I first came to Pine Street many years ago, alcohol was really the primary. We worried a lot more about people who were drinking and the devastating health and other effects of that. I think we rarely see someone who's not using multiple substances. Um, the trend that we saw probably in the, the you know late 80s, early 90s of, of people with mental health issues ending up homeless, uh, while we didn't see we don't see that same spike that we saw back then, there are still people who are mentally ill who for whatever reason can't access treatment and end up homeless. And it's our job to try and help knit things back together for people in systems that often aren't well coordinated to begin with. And Mm -hmm. so I think the systems work has gotten more difficult and more complex. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, when when we first started, it was about providing a bed and a meal uh, every night and and 70, 80 percent of the people would just utilize our our shelter for, you know, a a few weeks. And now it feels like we we really are that safety net where more complex people are coming in that are getting maybe have spending time in re- residential programs and not eligible anymore, or the insurance isn't covering the you know the if they need to get into treatment or the access just isn't available right now. And so, you know, I think if you take in the lack of treatment beds to help people with substance abuse and mental health, I mean, emergency rooms, medical emergency rooms are really becoming the respite medical and behavioral health and then they're ending up in our emergency shelters so we're really seeing a lot of people with a lot of physical disabilities mental health issues um and a lot of elderly people you know we've seen just in the the last five years over 50 percent increase of elderly people 60 and over coming to our doors and and i think that um you know and, and we can provide more supportive housing but we need the services to help people um, that have uh, some some severe medical and, and and services. So I think, you know, you add that up to the complex needs of just the housing market being a high rent area um, in the country in Greater Boston and Massachusetts. Um, people cannot make it that are severely disabled. Also, and that's important to touch on too. Is that when we talk about homeless individuals, we're talking about adults, which is eighteen and up. Yeah. And as you're saying that, you know, the needs of an 18 or a 19 year old are in some ways very different than that of the aging or, you know, over 60 population. Um, Bill, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, what's great about talking about these issues with folks there is that we see very similar things. And, and the, the medical concerns are uh, really sort of unbelievable up to and including end of life care that we're we're dealing with now that um, uh, in, in addition, so, so shelters are these catch basins for virtually every other social service system that doesn't uh, quite, you know, isn't able to fix everybody. And of course they can't, but I think the, um, 
you know, the trend has to be to to let us become more professional. And I think it speaks to this broader issue why we, you know, created the coalition to begin with, which is, you know, we're trying to provide professional services to um, to people with very complex needs. And so, you know, the historically 30 or 40 years ago, you could open in a church basement and just kind of feed people and, you know, take care of a few people. We're not at that point anymore. We need to really be able to step up and help people in a, in a wide range of ways. And, and so, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we need to be paid in a way that uh, we can do that. We can train staff appropriately. We can, um, you know, we can provide the kind of services that, uh, that are, that are really needed if we want positive outcomes. So there's a cost to serving this population as there is any population. Can you talk a little bit about what it means for all of you, particularly as you're currently in the process of advocating for increased funding to do this important work that you're doing all day, as you've all noted, it has become increasingly complex over the years. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you know, for us, um, it's getting harder and harder as, uh, you know, just in the South Shore, Quincy, Brockton to Plymouth, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to assist on average about 255 people a night. The state funding covers about half those people and we're not turning anybody away and we don't have enough beds. You know, we're we've got, you know, close to 50 to 75 people sleeping on the floors. Um, you know, especially in the winter time. So um, we don't get paid for daytime services. And I think if you've talked to the majority of the mayors in the Commonwealth, they would be like, you know, please fund shelters 24 seven. And it would give us an opportunity to really do progressive engagement with a lot of people that are just roaming the community during the day. So it's so challenging when, you know, I look at the veterans, which is, you know, thankfully we've seen a tremendous public investment over the last five years to end veterans homelessness. And across this country, we've seen over 50% um, de- decrease in homeless veterans because the public investment was made there. And if we made that same type of investment for all the homeless individuals, we would see cost savings. We would see more communities being open to maybe affordable, supportive community housing. Um, but right now we see so many people just falling through the cracks. So we're at that tipping point in, in, in our region where it's getting to be where communities are blaming the service providers because we're having trouble um, being able to serve everybody that comes into our door because we get the lowest rate of all programs that are dealing with really people with very complex issues. I think the the changes certainly for us at Pine Street, in addition to what John talked about and what Bill referenced, you know, we've had to add a lot of security in the past few years. Some of it is related to opioids, um, and some of it is we needed a more professional security staff. Our staff were trying to do it, and uh, it's hard to be a case manager and a security guard at the same time. And yes, it's, it's those are two it's hats. Co- I right? No, and, and it's com- it's complicated, right? And that's not the message we want to send to the people that we work with and the guests who who stay in our shelter. But but I also think as we have gotten better data across the state and certainly in the city of Boston, we now have very good data. We know who's homeless, how long they've been homeless. We know who's on the street. We meet every other week with the city and we go through the name of every single person that's been homeless for more than a year. And we troubleshoot on how we're going to get these people housed. That's really intensive hard work because you're having to figure out not just the housing strategy for this person, but you're having to figure out the support strategy, the transition strategy, the stabilization strategy. And if you can't pull other services 
service to the table, and often you cannot for a variety of reasons, we have to do it if we expect these folks, once they get housed, to stay housed. That costs money. Mm -hmm. Uh, As John said, this is a much cheaper alternative than emergency rooms, than inpatient, than inpatient psychiatric. Uh, It's a cheaper solution, certainly, and better solution than uh, jail for people. But if we're going to do this well and see cost savings on the healthcare side, but also um, be a commonwealth where we don't want to be known for having high numbers of homelessness. It's, 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 it's bad for everybody. It's bad for the people going through it. It's, it's bad for business. It's bad for the taxpayer because there's more effective ways to do it. But if you don't fund, um, you know, people like us doing the work up front, we are just going to pay for it some other way. So... We are running out of time, but I do want to quickly just touch on, so uh, something I've heard from your organizations is security and staffing um, and sort of the increased need for additional staff that you're now being, that you need to provide all of these other services, case management, sort of wrapping around these individuals when they come in. But really that this is about more, the, the coalition, your work, all of your organizations are about so much more than simply ending homelessness. It's about creating permanency and stability in people's lives through housing. And obviously, you know, uh, Pine Street just had a really big announcement around that. Um, And how many of your organizations are no longer just shelters, but now running housing, uh, which is, I'm sure, not something you had (laughs) always anticipated, but it really speaks to the best practice and what what we see or, or what you're all seeing as the solution here. Yeah, I think, you know, for Father Bills and Mainspring, we, we asked all the guests one year, um, you know, how can we help you? And after 20 years of, um, we're now we're at the over 30, but after 20 years of, of just providing shelter, people said, we need a home. And that really resonated. And we went out and asked community development companies, we went and asked the big affordable housing developers, can we build housing for the zero to 30% median income people, the chronic homeless? And it wasn't a lot of takers. It's a hard thing to do. Um, and and so we felt like for a particular group of people, um, we've got to end their homelessness. We've got to be part of the solution and look for partners. And so, yeah, we never thought we'd ever have to become um, developers of, of permanent housing and landlords. <laughs> Um, but it, it has proven to be really successful for the tenants, and it's been really successful for the, for the community, and it's been cost effective. And so we've just got to bring it to scale. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with John. Pine Street became a housing developer by default. We couldn't find a partner that wanted to develop housing for very low-income people who also had disabilities. And so we found ourselves in the supportive housing business. Uh, and. Gratefully, we're happy to be in that space because it really is the solution. We know permanent supportive housing works. We now have great development partners, partners which we're, we're thrilled by, but we don't have enough of it. This is one of those times where we know exactly what works. We just need more of it. Yep. Bill, anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I, I very much agree, and we do. We do uh, we're a housing developer as well. I, I would just say the other evening I was leaving, and there was a woman who was about 50 years old who'd been in shelter, eight months or so and she was so grateful for being there and so uh happy to be moving into her own home that evening but she also said she felt like she'd been running a marathon and she felt like when she crossed her threshold she was going to just fall down like a marathon runner does and cry it's it's just it's so hard for people and so i think you know, we, we all run incredibly efficiently. Every Virtually every dollar gets poured right into programming. Um, and so, but this work, this work just really, really matters. Um, and I think we feel that way around the table. 
Well, thank you to all of you for uh, coming in and talking talking to me today about this. And, you know, you and the other uh, organizations of the coalition really are just doing absolutely incredible work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone from Chi for joining us. Up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Cayenne. So this is Two Minutes with Tom, but this week we are featuring Vice President Lindsay Toghill. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Are you excited to be here? I'm so excited. (laughs) So uh, thank you for joining us. And we thought we would take today and ask you to really kind of walk us through the legislative and the budget process. We're at the beginning of it, which some people might be surprised by if you don't really understand how it all works. So can you just take us through the steps? Sure. So the legislature meets for two years, and that sounds a little crazy, I admit, but it's basically a two-year process. In Massachusetts. In Massachusetts. And the legislature was just sworn in in January. We're at the beginning of a two-year legislative cycle, and the legislature was sworn in in January, and they will meet continuously until July 31st of next year, when they will take a recess and come back in January. That'll be 2021 already, we're talking about. Will be the beginning of the next legislative cycle. And so right now, we've gone through the process of naming committee chairs and appointing uh, people to those committees, and then also referring all of the bills to the committees. And so now the legislative process has really just begun in terms of listening to uh, advocates, hearing bills, going through that process. And that'll continue again until uh, technically December of next year, 2020, but really in, in actuality, July 31st of next year. The other part that's really going on right now is the annual budget process. And that happens every single year. Uh, Massachusetts has a one-year budget, and it starts on July 1st, and it goes until June 30th of the following year. So the budget process this year started on January 24th when the governor filed his version of the FY20 state budget, and it's called House One. So if you hear the words House One, that's what that really means. It's the Which governor's can be bu- confusing. Exactly. <laughs> and so, so the, many. the governor offers his budget every year. Um, in the first year, it's called House One. In the second year, it's called House Two. So it just gives you a little bit of an idea there. And the next step in that process is that the House Ways and Means Committee, who is now um, chaired by Aaron Minkowitz from Boston, he is the new chair of House Ways and Means, They're expected to release their budget in mid-April, and we think it'll be April 10th. They haven't announced it publicly yet, um, but that's the date that I think that they're targeting. And then they'll have amendments due on that budget from about April 10th to April 12th, and then they'll debate that budget um, April 22nd through the 26th. They'll take off the week of school vacation week with Patriots Day being the 15th. So once they complete that process, it'll go over to the Senate. They'll do the exact same process. Then the Senate will take up their version of the FY20 budget, and they typically release it in the middle of May. And the new Senate Ways and Means Chair is Chairman Michael Rodericks. Uh, He is a new chair to the committee. He was previously the chair of revenue. And so Karen Spilka, who was the previous Senate Ways and Means Chair, is now the Senate President. So we're not quite sure what the timing exactly will be. They haven't announced the formal release date of the Senate budget, but we expect it'll either be the 14th or 15th of May. And then amendments would be due that Friday of that week. So either Thursday or Friday of that week, either the 16th or the 17th. And then debate on that Senate Ways and Means version would start on May 21st, the Tuesday of the next week, and go until Friday or Saturday of that week, which is Memorial Day weekend. So then what happens is that... Saturday, Memorial Day weekend. And it has happened before. (sighs) 
when uh, Karen Spilka was chair and when Terry Murray was chair, um, they have threatened Saturday. <laughs> and Terry Murray did bring them back in for a Saturday session one time. I can so, respect that. Yeah. Get in line, people. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happens is they take the two different versions of the bill, um, the House version and the Senate version, and they can be completely different. And what they'll do is combine them into one final version known as the conference committee budgets. And that should hopefully be released in June at some point um, as the fiscal year does start on June 30th. And then it goes to the governor's desk. It goes to the governor's desk. The governor has 10 days to sign it and make changes, make vetoes, make suggested changes. And so those uh, vetoes would come back for consideration before the legislature in July. So it's kind of a, it's a very quick process for a very large budget, um, but we're, we're starting the process now. So it should be in the next few weeks. All right. So you'll have to come back and give us an update later on in the legislative session. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to OA on Air on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite listening platform is. You can also get more OA on Air at our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week. <laughs>